YouTube and our learning library and the like. So um, thank you all very much for being here. And this has the wonderful, the, the, the best panels are really vague topics. It's such a vague title that you can go in any direction you want. Um, and that's a lot of fun. So our topic today, the most urgent agenda for the American Jewish community. Who's gonna set the agenda? And what's the agenda gonna be? And what's important but not urgent? And what's urgent and not important? Well, uh, probably nothing's urgent but not important. But urgent and uh, uh, important but, uh, um, uh, but not urgent. So friends, we have three great panelists today. And then following their six to eight minute presentations, um, I'm going to ask them a few questions. And then we're gonna open it up to you all, uh, both in the Zoom here and those of you in the Facebook Live who wanna ask questions so we can hear from you. In the meantime, you're always welcome to use the chat on the side if you wanna post uh, thoughts or questions there. When you unmute yourself, we'd ask you to keep those to questions, but in the chat, you can feel free to write thoughts in addition to questions. So we, uh, our first panelist, Rabbi Herschel Brody Aberson has served as Rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom of the East Valley in Chandler, Arizona for the last two years, a native of Los Angeles. He's excited to be a part of the larger Phoenix Jewish community as a fellow with Arizona Jews for Justice. Stanley Mervis is the Grossman Chair of Jewish Studies at Arizona State University and Assistant Professor of History in the School of Historical, Religious and Philosophical Studies. His research and teaching focuses on the social historical Jewish experience of early modernity, particularly within the culturally hybrid Atlantic world. He's the author of The Jews of 18th Century Jamaica, a testamentary history of a di diaspora in transition, published by Yale University Press in 2020. Highly recommend that. And Rabbi Nitzan Stein Koken, who is the rabbi of Congregation Beth El, ordained in June 2017. She's the first graduate of the Zacharias Frankel College in Berlin, Germany, one of the five rabbinical seminaries of the conservative movement. Her love for congregational and spiritual engagement led her to pursue the rabbinate when this new program opened its doors in Berlin in 2013. In addition, she holds a master's in Jewish studies from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And before coming to Phoenix in August 2019, Rabbi Stein worked as a Jewish educator for over 15 years teaching Judaism and Hebrew language in Jewish day schools and congregational settings in the United States, Germany, and Israel. So friends, once again, we, uh, the plan today is uh, to discuss the most urgent agenda for the American Jewish community in the spirit uh, at VBM. And we're gonna move to gallery view in a moment. In the spirit of VBM, bringing many voices into the conversation and being in dialogue with each other, even in machlokit with each other, disagreements, respectful disagreement. Um, we are gonna hear those presentations. I'm gonna ask a few questions and then we'll open it up for, from questions from y'all on Facebook Live and here in the Zoom. So why don't, um, why don't we uh, go in the order which I just, uh, I shared here, which is relatively arbitrary. So uh, Reb Brody, Reb Herschel, you wanna kick us off? Uh, sure. Hi everyone. Um, so it's a big question. What is the most urgent agenda? Or what is the agenda for the American Jewish community? What do we need? Um, and there's a lot of different ways to come at this and I'm sure my fellow panelists will have their, will be coming at it from different places. And I figured I would come at it from something that is near and dear to my heart which is Jewish education. Um, I've been in this as a product of and a producer of Jewish learning now for, I'd say, what, 30 plus years. 
um, mainly a consumer until fairly recently and now a producer. And also on top of that, I, I, I lead a religious community, a spiritual community that needs to maintain the spiritual needs of and the ritual needs of Jewish life in, alongside the educational needs. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is we tend to, as American Jews, center everything on a Beit Tefillah, a house of prayer. Yet, we have this huge split in many of our communities between the people who show up for prayers and the people who show up for education, for classes, particularly religious school-age families. Uh, at least in my experience, there tends to be a relatively clear line between families and communities that live that live and engage in a synagogue through the Jewish through the religious school or the USY or the Nifty or the NCSY the the youth oriented stuff that the families coming to provide their kids with a Jewish upbringing and the section of people who are coming for their own prayer needs or their own learning needs and oftentimes we somehow forget that the goal is to get or that one of our goals is to get the kids who are learning and the families around them to be the adults who are learning for their own sake. Um, I've been blessed with several opportunities to be in multi-denominational, non-specific uh, Jewish environments. And in those places, it's really hard to get everybody to pray together. It just is. I think Reb Shmuley can, can attest, it can be a pain in the butt to get serious, committed Jews from non-Orthodox and Orthodox groups to be able to pray together. At some level, when you start introducing, you know, gender non-specific davening spaces or prayer spaces, it just, you can't mix. But you, what always seems to work for everyone at some level is you can study together, you can learn together. And so my radical proposal, my radical agenda for the rest for, for my life in the long term is perhaps to shift our focus from having Jewish communal life be Beit Tefillah, a place of prayer, into Beit Limud, a, a house of learning, where the focus is on bringing people together to learn about and understand their tradition, their practices, why they do what they do. Um, rather than it being just a place for people to pray together and then they do stuff, it's a place where they learn together and then maybe they'll pray. If you have a hundred people in a Beit Midrash and you go, it's time to daven? Well, guess what? You can break up into groups of 10 and everyone could in theory find some place where they're comfortable praying. And then your idea of what defines a Jewish community in the micro level changes from we agree on the ritual or theological elements to we agree on the importance of learning about it. And that's a slice of the Jewish community that can be a lot more broad, a lot more open. And from there, all of the issues that are worthy of discussion or consideration can be brought forward. If we need to talk about Israel, if we need to talk about our race relations in the United States, if we need to talk about what, if any, our obligations to people outside of our communities and our, and our environments, those can all be understood or start to be engaged with from the lens of Jewish learning. And 
again, the thing that brings people together is not the point of agreement about an idea, but the, but the idea that we can all disagree together. Um, now, this is potentially impractical because we've gotten so used to building our spiritual lives as the center based on Shabbat and holidays. But I actually raised the question, how many people do you know go to services every day? How many people do you know always show up for Shabbat? How many young families come to a synagogue or a JCC or a Jewish organization and are consistent on the spiritual elements versus a class or a community? How many mommy and me classes built ongoing communities versus how many Shabbat morning services? That isn't to say Shabbat isn't important or that the services aren't, aren't, aren't important points of common touchstone. But again, I come back to the most important agenda for me is building communities of learning where the disagreements are the point, not the obstacle. Was that six minutes or was Beautiful. I? Beautiful, perfect. Thank you so much, Reb Herschel. Very clear case you made here. A very passionate case. You made a, you made a pitch for VBM, uh, a, 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 a Beit Midrash here in the Valley. So thank you, thank you for, for promoting Jewish learning. And of course you're doing it um, and, and we're all doing it in our own way. So thank you so much. Okay, Professor Stanley Mervis. Uh, thank you very much. Um, what you said, rehearsal is very beautiful and I think I'm gonna have a, uh, a similar conclusion. And, and I, I just wanna start by saying how challenged I was by this question. And so I was really trying to think about how I was going to approach this. You know, my, my role here, I guess, is the historian. So, uh, you know, I would approach this through an historical perspective, but I was really challenged by this question. And, and at the end, you know, as of like 30 minutes ago, I still didn't know how to address it. And so I decided, okay, I'm just gonna speak personally about my own feelings about being an American Jew uh, right now, my own feelings of alienation and, um, and, and where, what I think can be done uh, to, uh, to bring some kind of unity to, the, to American Jewry. So I, I preface this by saying I'm only speaking for myself. And, um, and, I, and I see all, all viewpoints and perspectives as being equally valid. And I just um, want to say that. So, uh, but, but from a very personal, I'll speak unusually, I'm gonna speak very personally about my life as an American Jew. And so one, I mean, I was trying to think about a positive, like what is the one thing in the past 10 years that all American Jews from Sotmer in Brooklyn to the reform in the Atlanta temple could agree on? Was there one principle, one idea that everybody could agree on? And I really struggled to, to find it. It's not anti-Semitism because I think uh, conservative Jews, let's say Jews on the right are going to blame, uh, see anti-Semitism as a tool of the left and uh, the, and, and Jews on the left see anti-Semitism as a tool of the right. And so there's not even an agreement about where anti-Semitism comes from or what's the, what's the chief threat of anti-Semitism. I think the, the divisions uh, hold true with the state of Israel. Uh, Jews on the left, socially progressive Jews are increasingly alienated from the state of Israel. Whereas uh, Jews that are politically conservative have become uh, entrenched in uh, some kind of chauvinistic nationalism, I think, uh, sometimes for the right or wrong reasons. Um, obviously, the greatest failure perhaps of the last 10 years is uh, Jewish complicity 
with the attack on American democracy and on anti-immigration policies. Um, but, uh, but the same holds true. So I'm obviously alienated from that politically, but I feel equally alienated from political progressives as well. And I'll give you uh, an example. Like I, um, I don't know if anyone else felt this, but when I saw, uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and her body was uh, lying in state, I was really, really upset by that. Uh, and it really viscerally affected me because of a, of a corpse that was lying, uh, that was lying out. It just seemed like the greatest American honor was the greatest violence to the Jewish tradition, uh, that a corpse should be buried within 24 hours. Uh, and, and I was really, really bothered by that. And, and, and I saw some, pe some people tried to meditate on this. And, and of course, I have complete respect for, for the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg meant a lot to America, not just as a Jew. But the message was almost that um, in order to be, you can be Jewish and American, but to be a great Jewish American, you're going to have to have some kind of erasure. And, uh, and I felt like uh, the, the left was engaging in a lot of erasure, especially of Jewish ethnic identity um, and apologetics of the state of Israel or things like that. So um, I, I, I come away from the past 10 years feeling deeply alienated from American Jewry um, and, and that there really was no, um, there is no one thing that could all bring us together. Um, another, I think another example is, is a show that's become very popular which I find offensive, which is the Maisel show. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the Maisel, uh, Miss Maisel show. And I saw a season of it and, um, and, 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 I, and I feel like this is a great failure of Jews to uh, defend themselves and to represent themselves in um, an American culture. This is a show that's written by non-Jews, performed by non-Jews and is basically a minstrel show. It's about Jews complaining about bagels in New York, right? It's, um, it, it, it's anti-Semitic and I'll go out on a limb and say that. And yet uh, Jews have, I think, um, really uh, accepted that as being, a, like a, as being a legitimate representation of themselves. Um, I think Israeli cultural per, uh, representations of Jews have, have, have really vastly exceeded in American um, perceptions, but I feel like this is a kind of failure of the of political of the progressive liberal uh, Jews um, who embrace that kind of uh, portrayal of uh, of Jews, uh, the Jewish minstrel. Uh, anyway, uh, so I mean, this is me complaining more than anything. So, what is there? Is there a solution to this in the next ten years? Is there something that could get? Sotmer in Brooklyn to agree with the Reform Temple in Atlanta. I mean, is there so? I'm just using that as examples of extremes. Uh, but is there something? And my my only conclusion is like Rav Hirsch, Herschel, that um, th that the kind of Lairhouse approach that you uh, are advocating here, the BBM approach, which is education, but I think particularly Hebrew education. I think Hebrew language may be the one thing that could bring us together. And the reason I say that is what, I mean, what unifies, a, what brings a Yemeni Jew together with a Polish Jew, together with a, um, a, a Jew from, uh, a Greek-speaking Jew from uh, the Mediterranean? Like, what is the thing that unifies Jew, Jewishness as an ethnicity? And it's the, the Hebrew language. We all pray in the same language. And I feel like a greater emphasis and prioritization of the Hebrew language in American culture could help build a unity with Israeli culture, 
could help build greater unity with other Semitic groups, right? Uh, naturally important to overcome this, uh, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, it, it could uh, create a positive, culturally forward way of identifying ethnically as being Jewish in a way that isn't um, uh, the need for a, have apologetics. So I think that th that Hebrew language might be the one way. And I, how would that go? Uh, Hillel's should be encouraging more Hebrew. Um, the uh, Chabad has a major role to play in this, a very popular Orthodox movement that doesn't, isn't anti-Hebrew, but really does not prioritize it at all. Uh, and so that is, I, I think if we could all try to um, create more of a Hebrew, spoken Hebrew culture among American Jewry, that might be the thing that could lift us um, up, uh, away out of our disunities. So that's the best that I could do uh, for this very complicated question. Amazing, amazing. Professor Mervis, thank you for all those reflections and, uh, and your personal element there as well. Um, and for helping us think about solutions. Rabbi uh, Nitzan Stein Koken. Wow, I mean, why add? <laughs> I, uh, this is the toughest, right? Uh, two of my big points uh, were already right out there. Um, as you know, I come, or as you heard in my bio, I, I don't come from a historian academic uh, background tackling this question, right? I come as a congregational rabbi. I come as a cater. Um, and so I was looking at this question and, and thinking we've passed a year behind screens in our families or on our own Jewish life is built on being in a community prayer needs a minion the shabbos is lonely if you don't have a guest right church just gradually come out and this pandemic sort of has equalized also in a sense why should i go to the service of my shul if i can go in l.a or somewhere you know, to fancy rabbi or another shul, right? Why do I need to have a local learn if I can go to Valley Bay Mush or to, I don't know. It was, it was a great equalizer also in a sense that you can go all over the world. You meet people and teach from all over the world. I'm thinking of the program of people we had here, right? Uh, in the Valley Midrash. Uh, um, so, but I... And now we're coming out of this as institutions, as synagogues, as organizations. And we have a unique chance to rebuild Jewish. And we have a unique chance to start again and, st and bring in some new ideas. And we need to think carefully because as Rabbi Brody said, uh, the, the, or, uh, the, it's not uh, self-understood in my age and younger to sign up as a membership in a, in a synagogue, right? So, so what, what, what are the things that I think we can do and that are urgent for me? I think we need to, first of all, we need to take our 
Judaism seriously, right? As lay people, are we asking enough of our Judaism? So many people go through, right? We bring our kids to religious schools and then around bar mitzvah education, we end our own education. Not all of them, those of you who are here, I see you continuing, right? But there's, you know, can I, so first of all, I also had this point of education and but education, I would even suggest empowering myself to become proud of our heritage as Jews again, proud of our people, proud of the achievements, right? We have empowering people to be literate Jews, literate li Jewish literacy in the white understanding. I can do Jewish. I can do Shabbat. I can make Kiddush, right? I can have the ethnical food, but I also can celebrate Shabbat and know what it's about and can say the Jewish prayers. I, I can, I have a, I, I have a stand, I, I expect from my Judaism to have answers on medical issues and ethical issues on social justice issues, right? And am I expecting that from my Judaism or is it just an aesthetic piece and, uh, and the bagels and the lux, right? So Jewish, be proud to empower families and individuals um, to know and to do Jewish, I think, and to bring it back to the home base, strengthening the home base to do that. That's sort of my issue. So many people I see when we go into the houses, not really sure how to do Jewish. So one of the things for me is bring Judaism on a high level back to the home base, strengthen and uh, strengthen the knowledge of how to do Jewish. And this can be on the ritual level and should be on the ritual level. This should be on the, the social action level on my civic involvement. And this should also be, and this brings me to my next point, Hebrew literacy. I do agree, like Stan said, we have such a, we have a 3000 year old history of Jewish text and Jewish language of Hebrew language. And we have a modern Hebrew culture and cultural productivity and artistic productivity. And we can go both ways and we have it all global. And like, like I, I don't wanna just repeat, but really um, to be, if you were Jew and you know a little bit of Hebrew that you can get around, be in the service, be in prayer service, or just a little bit of modern, you can go all over the world and make connections and function. So I'm also advocating one of the urgent things is Hebrew knowledge, Hebrew literacy. Um, and even not just in the ritual perspective, it could also be reading Hebrew literature, even in like, uh, even in English or so, right? Be aware of what happens in Israel on a cultural and artistic level. Um, because, and that brings me to my third big point, these past years, especially here in America, have brought so much division. Division politically, division religiously. We are one people, we're Klal Israel, right? If we wanna go strong together, we need to be able to have a dialogue 
to be respectful with each other and respectfully disagree. And Rabbi Brody also said this already. Um, but to get a sense again of Klal Israel, when 45 people die in a stampede at Mount Meron, my heart hurts because I feel a belonging. These are my brothers and sisters, right? So, and we often don't have that because we're so divided. We're so divided about the secular politics. We're so divided about Israel politics. We're so divided where we stand religiously. But if we wanna move strong forward, I think we need to find a way to see ourselves as part of Klalisvayel. And I would say that I stop here for now because I want us to have ample time to discuss and questions and questions from the people who are here. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much, Rabbi. And this is, uh, we're right on time. We're right on time here um, with three very thoughtful presentations. I'm gonna ask one question, one or two questions to each person, each panelist. And uh, y'all are free to start posting in the side as well as I see some have. And, um, uh, and also we'll be monitoring the Facebook Live over there. <clears throat> so to start with you, Rabbi Herschel Brody Aberson, um, I, I find very compelling your vision of, of uh, making, moving the centrality from the Beit Tefillah to the Beit Limud or Beit Midrash, making prayer less central for Jewish unity, if you will, and making uh, disagreement and an intellectual discourse very central. So I, my, my first of two questions for you, one is that, we are a people of action more than a people of learning, right? We are the people of the mitzvot, the people of doing. And so um, my question for you and your cat um, is, what is the relationship between learning and action? We know that Plato was wrong, that those who know the good will do the good, right? So it doesn't mean more learning will mean lead to better mitzvot in the world. So how do you see the connection between that rigorous intellectual discourse and how that extends into being people of virtue, people of mitzvot? That's my first question for you. My second question for you is building off Dr. Alan Mulk's question in the chat, where he says, he asks, um, prayer versus learning is all good, um, and we all love both, but if less than 20% of Jews even belong to a shul, we're in deep trouble. This is the elephant in the room. And so building off that question, um, if the sliver of American Jews that are even interested at, at the current moment of participating in a Beit Tefillah or a Beit Limud is so small, how does that, how does that become a vehicle for larger engagement? Um, so one thing to clarify is, I actually think there's value in not setting too many hard boundaries about what defines like Jewish engagement. Um, I think one of the things that in some, some ways that we've lost as a culture, or as, a, as, a, as a kind of people, is this idea that there's a lot of different ways to be and do Jewish. And one of the great challenges is figuring out how do we help people find the pathways that work best for them. So I think to start at the end, um, Dr. Mulk, to address the idea of, you know, belonging to a shul, like, well, then let's stop making belonging to a shul be the defining characteristic of who we reach out to or who we serve. Um, like, I know for a fact, like, I, I'm only, I, I'm a two-year-old rabbi. Like I've only been at this for a very brief time, but I found one of the most important functions I serve is not actually in my community is not just is not actually serving members of the synagogue, but being a Jewish resource to my entire area. Um, 
I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, the Southeast Valley of Phoenix, but there aren't that many Jewish institutions once you get far enough south and east. Um, and in my experience, I find myself being called on a lot to go to hospices or retirement communities and just be a rabbi from people who are calling and literally they're looking up rabbi or synagogue and looking at which synagogue is closest to them and calling and saying, hey, we need a rabbi. Uh, so like clearly there, there's Jews out there who at some point in their life are calling for a rabbi and don't, and have like membership in a community is wise. I, Sandra, please do not let anyone say that I do not advocate joining a synagogue if you can. But it's, but the people that we're touching and influencing, like, it's not just about the members. Like, yes, in the long run, investing in that is a good way to make sure you've got people there for you and your family in times of celebration and sorrow. But recognizing that membership in a synagogue is not, is not or doesn't even need to be the primary way to be involved in a Jewish community opens up a lot of opportunities for us be it learning sessions and like davening in parks all over the city or going to people's offices to lead lunch and learns for anyone who's interested, being at bars or coffee houses, you know, pre-pandemic times and maybe post-pandemic times, we hope, but making doing Jewish not just be suits and ties and dresses in the synagogue, but also having a beer with the rabbi or a non-alcoholic beverage while talking Talmud, um, you know, showing up for a lunch break to, 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 to hang out or to, to, to discuss. Making it a habit where people like, you know, drop by the synagogue because we have the building at all hours to, and knowing that there's somebody there who, if they have a question, will, will go, huh, good question. Let's go look it up and know what they're doing. So like that, I think like these are these are my dreams of like getting outside the membership box. Right. Getting outside the old models. Amazing. Um, awesome. I don't think I answered your first question, though. Oh, yes. Please go back to that. Uh, can you remind me of it? I got a little oh, yes. lost. Uh, the, the, the relationship, if we're going to be a people of virtue, a people of mitzvah, a people of action, how you think about learning, improving action. So uh, I'll be honest. At the end of the day, I recognize that I can't make people do things they don't want to do. If we think of study and engagement as a persuasive, as an opportunity to persuade or guide, then the act of study or engage a study is itself what you're doing to get people to act. Because here's the thing, Rev Shmuley, if you or Eddie were at my Beit Midrash in the evening and you're like, oh, by the way, after this, we're going to go to the, you know, go to the Capitol building with some signs. Well, it gets a lot harder for me to say, oh, I can't go. Or if somebody might not know, like all of a sudden you don't have to do the emails or the phone calls or the, you know, instant messaging chats asking for people to show up. You just go, hey, we're heading out. And, you know, if you just spent an hour studying with somebody, a, a page of Talmud, well, you have a relationship with them. You're asking them to join you in things you're doing just as they might ask you to join them in doing something else. Or somebody goes, hey, it's 7 p.m. Anybody want to dive in? I'm egal, right? Like the ways communities are built are we spend time together doing stuff. Right. Okay. And the way we change, yep. the way we change people or get them to act is we do things and encourage people we care about to do them with us. Yeah, very interesting.
Okay, thank you so much. Uh, 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 very interesting. Uh, uh, Professor Mervis, um, I, I, very compelling ideas here around uh, the levels of alienation, which I think you're exactly right, are very high. And I think as usual, the typical institutional Jewish response is often blame the consumer. Oh, if only people cared more, or why don't they get how good this is, right? If only they knew they would be, not be alienated. <laughs> if only they knew how good everything we have is. Um, and in some cases that might be true, the product is perfect and the marketing is bad. Um, but in other cases, people are looking for something different. It's also true in human psychology, certainly in the Jewish community, if you have 50 great experiences and one bad, you might choose to opt out. One, if the one outweighs the 50. In any case, for you on a personal level and from the perspective of, as a historian, uh, in particular from the culturally hybrid Atlantic world, how do you think about how we overcome alienation? How should Jewish leaders and Jewish communities think about things we should think about differently and do differently to help to ensure that less Jews feel alienated from Jewish participation. Uh, thanks, Shmuley. Uh, let, let me um, first say that I love that cat a lot, Rabbi Herschel. That's a wonderful cat. I've got two little kittens, uh, kitten brothers at home, Salafakad and uh, Samale, and uh, they would dash around me too because they're rascals. If I was at home, that's why I come to the office to escape the kittens. Um, uh, so. Uh, yeah, I was deflecting there by talking about cute kittens because I don't know how to answer the question. From I think from, from a historian's answer, I'll tell you where I find a lot of meaning is I find meaning in uh, like the Zachariah Frankel, like here at Rabbi uh, Stein Koken, like the, the, in the Zachariah Frankel model of historical positivism. And I'll say, I don't like labels. I think moving away from labels could be a great way of um, transcendence as, as, as Jews, um, like, uh, you know, do we have to be conservative reform, orthodox reconstructionist, you know? Uh, I, I can't, I, I don't identify with any label per se myself. I find that very, every, it's so limiting. And, um, but if there's one label, if I had to choose a label, I would choose a historical positivist. Because I think that that school, the Breslau school, really captured something beautiful, which is that uh, Ju Ju Judaism as a culture, Judaism as a living historical entity and something that's in constant evolution, something that's constantly in dialogue with, uh, with the cultures and societies that surround it. This was definitely true of the Portuguese nation uh, that inhabited the Atlantic world. They were um, touched, they, were all, they all had been former conversos, uh, they were then all new Jews and they had very specific, um, very specific challenges and I think the way that they made meaning of their experiences was by overemphasizing ethnic identity uh, to a fault, almost uh, arriving at a position of like uh, Portuguese ethnic supremacy. So, um, and so that would be like for my own research. I think, you know, I personally am able to identify with uh, Judaism very powerfully through the historical, um, through the historical evolution of it by looking at Sifre Ivronot by looking at Sifre Minhagim, uh, Sefer Minhagim, or looking at um, uh, historical texts of Machzorim Hagadot, seeing the imagery, seeing the way that uh, liturgies evolve and change and how uh, Jews are in constant dialogue. And I think uh, with that realization, we see that, that nobody can be fully invested in any one of their, in any one of their uh, labeled ideologies. 
right? Orthodoxy is as new, if not newer than reform. You know, uh, 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 is uh, one of the newest things you could say, which is kind of ironic. Uh, and so I, I, I think all of those things kind of fall, fall away when you can see uh, Judaism as a living cultural heritage that's in constant evolution. Amazing, very insightful. Thank you so much. So, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Steinkoken, um, one of the one of the things you emphasize there is strengthening the home base, both in terms of, of local community and in terms of, of the home. And there's really a lot to say about that. And but I wonder how we respond to the global phenomenon, or at least the American phenomenon of decentralization. Decentralization, as we see. Um, in terms of how information is shared in social media networks, decentralization in terms of phenomena like Uber and Amazon and Netflix, decentralization in the Jewish world from the Beit HaMikdash to the diaspora to synagogues in every, in every town, and, and, and how we think about centers versus decentralization in that model, um, and if there's a need for centers anymore. Ooh, you pose a big question here. <laughs> um, if I look at the world of the Talmud, I have decentralization. I have conversation. I have dialogue. I have rabbis traveling different traditions, right? And, um, you know, from my background, I, I have a knack for rabbinic literature, right? I have uh, groups of teachers and students. Um, what, what I'm asking really is, you know, are, are we proud of our Judaism, right? What we all assumed here in this panel was that like underneath, as I was listening to us and to your questions, it's like the urgent agenda is the continuation of Judaism in some way or another, right? That's what we're, that's really the elephant in the room, right? As, as far as I hear from when I'm listening in of what we're saying. And then there's a secondary point of like, within, can we ensure the continuation of Judaism? Then in what way do we find community and maybe something uniting? And um, what, what I wanna nuance here is, you know, first of all, I wanna say, we don't need to be afraid. Judaism has been around and will be around in a diversity of ways. I trust. I trust the tradition and I trust the change, right? And, and, and you just mentioned that, like basically the Frankel tradition and change, right? Um, we, we are, we're based strongly, we're still around and we, we adapt and we'll find new ways and there's new creativity and all, and be it in doing, be it in social action, be it in secular Judaism, be it ethnic plurality, right? So I want people, I don't, I want people to be proud of their Jewishness. I want people to expect from the, the Jewish part of their identity to say, what is the meaning of being Jewish? What is the grand narrative at the heart of Jewish life that claims me? And find that point and move forward. 
Beautiful, thank you so much. So friends, what we're gonna do now is we're gonna invite folks to unmute themselves. We're gonna hear a whole series of questions from all of you. Um, and then we're gonna allow the panelists to respond to whatever they, they feel most inclined to respond to. So uh, I'm, I might even call on some of you just cause I wanna uh, have as many voices in the room as possible, but let's start with those who would like to start. Okay, uh, Professor Daniel Stein-Koken has a hand up. Please go ahead. Ah, you're on mute. Still on mute. Thank you. I'm not really professoring at the moment, but thank you nonetheless. So I guess I just wanna, I wanna ask the question, and I guess I think this is to Stan especially, why is unity, unity seemed to be underlying your, your comments of, you were alienated because you're missing the unity. You're wondering how can we obtain, acquire, return to the unity. And I guess my question is, why is unity, why does unity matter? Why is it so important? And I asked, and I pose this question because it seems to me that historically speaking, there never really is complete unity. And I sometimes wonder if, I think it's natural for human beings to aspire to unity, but I sometimes think that the very aspiration to a unity that might be impossible actually might contribute to a degree of alienation. Um, so I just, I invite you to reflect upon that. Uh, and then there was just very specifically, you said something about Israeli culture with regard to American, American Jewish culture, but I didn't quite catch, I, could, I just, I couldn't hear it exactly what you said, but it sounded interesting. So if you could maybe just say it again and elaborate on it, that would be great. Okay, and, great. Thank and I, my wife should have mentioned that we also have a cat, by the way. So this is, uh, uh, <laughs> Very important to mention, very important to mention. Thank you. <laughs> okay, someone else, thank you for that. Who else would like to ask? Okay, I'll start engaging some folks here so no one feels pressured. Actually, maybe feels more pressured. Um, okay, Howard Rosen, would you like to throw a question in? He says, not at the moment, okay. Vicki Cabot, would you like to ask a question? The only comment I think I would make and maybe throw it out to the panel was um, uh, Rabbi Stein Kokin's uh, referral to the fact that we're coming out of very difficult times and how that has impacted and will continue to impact us in terms of how we again define what community is um, and whether that really will be a time for more innovation and change. Great, amazing. Thank you for that, Vicki. And I'm going to uh, read a question that the uh, uh, Hazimah family wrote on the side, which is geared to the two rabbis who happen to both emerge from the conservative, capital C conservative Jewish world. Two questions. One, I feel like we keep hearing that the intermarriage is an obstacle for the Jewish community. Do you see the Masorti or conservative movement in North America changing its stance on that issue and allowing for rabbis to officiate an interfaith marriage? If so, would you officiate them? And secondly, from what I heard, the Masorti or conservative movement in North America is shrinking. Do you see that, that movement in North America merging with the reform movement at some point? So let's make a note of those questions. And uh, Wendy, would you like to jump in? Um, I like Rabbi Herschel's idea of creating space where people can come in and not be intimidated 
um, or feel threatened, where they can uh, be curious to learn different things, where we can offer kind of like a mall type, not one space fits all, but the space is, is there's there for everybody to do all kinds of things to access Judaism. If you wanna come and watch a movie with Jewish themes, you wanna come study Talmud, you wanna come learn, um, learn um, um, how to speak Hebrew. Um, I, I love this idea of recreating a space that will bring all kinds of people in seeking all different ways to come into Judaism. I think, I love that idea. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. Great, uh, uh, Alan Silverman, would you like to share? If you do, you're on mute still. Okay, while we're waiting to see if he joins. Uh, anyone else here, Doreen or Sandra, Stephen Marty, Yehuda, Mike and Jenny, Alan Moak, if you wanna share again, Michelle, anyone wanna jump in? Oh, okay, Dr. Moak, you wanna, uh, you wanna jump in with that? Probably surely, I'll, I'll jump in. Oh, okay, great, who's that? Um, well, I, I think, you know, part, a couple, a couple of comments and I'd love to hear the panelists' responses if, is that anybody that identifies themselves as a Jew is like call Israel, like Rabbi Steinko mentioned in her, in her remarks. And everybody identifies being a Jew in different ways. They might say, well, I'm, I'm Orthodox. I'm, I, I love Israel. I support Israel. I support uh, Jewish ideals or, or charities. So I think that's, that, that's, that's what one thing that brings a lot of us together, how to manufacture more unity, I, I'm not sure. The other thing is that I think that one thing the pandemic has done for, for learn, Jewish learning and, and, and uh, tefillah is, is, the, uh, is Zoom and Facebook. I think it's brought people that might ordinarily not be able to attend a daily minion or come to Shabbat services for whatever reason have an, have an access now. And I would like to hear comments as far as that, as, 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 as what the post-pandemic is gonna entail as far as this hybridization, whether that's something that should still be maintained. So people that, that wanna attend a service at Bethel and they live in North Scottsdale and, and just don't feel like getting dressed up to come to shul, they, they can still access or, or, or be able to stay in the cottage if they have a yard site. So, so on and so forth. That could be divisive a little bit or, or not bringing people together or it could be bringing people together. I'd just like to hear some comments on that. Thank you. Okay, uh, amazing. So I'm gonna read one more question from the chat and then we'll turn it back to the panelists. We'll give each of them about four minutes each uh, if, to respond as they wish. Uh, Dr. Moak also wrote on the side here um, uh, about the unhelpful intolerance of Orthodox versus reform and vice versa that we're so few in numbers for unhealthy infighting. Um, and, uh, um, so, okay, so we have a few comments and questions here and let's turn it back to you. Why don't we go in the opposite order from usual. Uh, Rabbi Steinkoken, if you wanna jump in first with whatever you'd like to respond to. Oh boy, uh, you guys are asking tough questions and that's good, <laughs> that's good. Because that means uh, it's important to us and, and we need to grapple with these questions are real questions. Um, I think what, what the pandemic and the Zoom has done for us is really catapult us and especially synagogues and, and, and institutions like this into 
the 21st century with, you know, there was no century where, where Jewish learning and Jewish knowledge was so available than, than now. Like, it's actually amazing. You, you can go to myjewishlearning.com and find articles about every topic. You can go to sepharia.org and find Jewish texts, you know, classic, modern, from all the centuries, you know. Like, it never has been that democratic in a sense of everyone having access to so much Jewish knowledge, right? So, so I think that's a, a huge a huge richness and beauty. And so um, me as, as, a, as, a, as a Jewish leader or Jewish professional, or then I, I'm gonna ask myself, how can I guide and how can I mentor and how can I bring energy and, and spirit to, to make it meaningful and create uh, meaningful um, moments and life events and relationships for Jews and their families or non-Jews who are interested or, um, or mixed families, right? Um, like the question was intermarriage. Intermarriage is not an obstacle, it's a reality, at least in the liberal streams of Judaism, we're right there, right? Um, we, we have non-Jewish spouses, non-Jewish children, halachically non-Jewish, you know, as we define in the Masorti Judaism, we still define a Jewish, Jewish person as born by a Jewish mother or converted. Um, so it's right there and it's our reality. And I think we need to be inclusive because these children, they grow up, if the family comes to us, they want to have a Jew, they want to be connected to their Judaism in their family. Now, the whole question of the can we officiate or not, I, I assure you, the, our teachers, our great thinkers, we're working on it. We're not quite there yet. And I think we need to find solutions soon. Um, and I'm just, I do step back here um, as I feel like uh, as, as a young rabbi relatively in my experience. Um, I wanna give the others also, I know that this is not at all comprehensive in my answer, but I wanna give the other panelists also a chance to talk. Thank you so much. Okay, great, Professor Mervis. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, so in response to uh, Daniel, I, uh, I completely agree with you that, that unity has never existed. Look no further than Josephus and you'll see lots of sectarianism. Uh, as you go through uh, Middle Ages, there's Karaites and uh, in early modern, there's divisions between Sabatians, uh, Kabbalists and anti-Kabbalists. Uh, you know, and then as we move into modernity, denominational divisions. I mean, so, uh, and of course, inter-ethnic divisions, Romaniot, Sephardi, Portuguese, uh, you know, you name it. Um, it's it, you know, uh, Maghrebi. So there's so Judy, Ju there's never really been a Jewish people per se. I know that's kind of a fiction, especially in the early modern period. It's really a highly debated topic. Was there such a thing as pan-Jewish identity? Did it ever really exist? Or if it does, when does it exist? Um, I think that we're probably closer now to a pan-Jewish identity than we've ever been before. And I, I, I may be wrong about that. Uh, but I feel like there, that there is that kind of um, 
possibility. But I guess um, I think that your comment about a, um, a hope for uh, the aspiration of unity is it creates alienation. I think that that's very poignant, and I agree 100%. I think that's a very uh, a, a very insightful way of saying it. I, I guess what I was trying to do is rather than making a call for unity, making a call for uh, let's try to identify the thing that we could all sort of share in common and build on that as our agenda for the next 10 years. If there was something that we could all, uh, something that we could all kind of um, agree on, to whatever level, that that could be the thing to build on. But I think it might've been um, overly ambitious or impossible. And maybe unity is not something to strive for. Maybe uh, th that's never existed. And I agree with you 100%. That, um, that, that it's not like we're returning to unity. You know, maybe we're striving for unity. So there's that. Um, now, in, in terms of your con your comment about the uh, what I meant by the Israeli uh, cultural representations of Jews, that's speaking completely personally. Uh, you know, as a completely individual matter of taste, um, I've been watching a lot of Israeli um, movies and Israeli shows, and I find this that the depictions of Jewish life and the depictions of Jews to this sit much better with me than. Uh, than in an American uh, depictions. Like when I watched Maisel, I don't mean if you like Maisel, it's okay, keep watching it, it's fine. But I, but I felt really, really sickened by it. And then when I, when I see, but there, there's some, uh, uh, like, you know, I find the Coen brothers find, like have a beautiful way of representing Jew, Jewishness. You know, so it's not like all, uh, but, but, uh, but uh, just the, the thing that comes to my mind is uh, my wife and I just finished watching season three of Stissel. And that show somehow touches me on such a personal level. And, and, and it makes me feel like um, how important representation is. It, it really helped me to uh, um, appreciate some of the things that like what African-Americans go through, uh, the need to be represented in popular culture. Like when I watched that show, I felt more than in any other depictions of Jews that I was being represented. Um, and so that to me really helped. And so I, I find that Israeli, uh, Israeli depictions of Jews and Judaism tends to be much more nuanced, I think, than American. Amazing, thank you so much. Okay, and to close us off here, if you wanna take three or four minutes, uh, So I'm gonna do my best in three or four minutes to try and answer every single thing that was said. Um, <laughs> and here's how I'm going to do it. Um, I think, Unity is important, but the trick is, I don't think we all agree on what unity means, what its definition is. So here's mine. Unity is we all continue to come back to engage each other in good faith on difficult issues. That to me is a group that is unified. Not that they agree, but that they continue to believe it's important to come back together in good faith. And good faith is really, really important here because without it, you don't actually have the ability to grow and change and adapt and evolve with others. You're not in relationship with them. You know, you come, if you're coming to just advocate, you're closed off, you can't, you can't hear and you can't really connect. Um, and I think we forget that the most effective tools for long-term positive change in a community is persuasion. Um, but I, I look at my own relationship with the larger Jewish community and realize there's a huge chunk of the Jewish world that would look at me and say, not only am I not a rabbi, 
but I'm not a Jew and that I teach heresy. And you know what? I still care about them. You don't have, like, I, I, I realized a long time ago, I would not be fully accepted by every Jew I met. And that gave me a freedom to say, I can have my way of being Jewish. I'm doing my best to be engaged in good faith with everyone else. And that's all I can control. So on questions of intermarriage, you know what? I'm going to accept people as they come. There are certain ritual things we have to deal with. But at the end of the day, if you love a Jew, you're part of the community, you, even if you are not Jewish. If you're family with Jews, you're family with Jews. Just we accept that and need to move on. Um, if, yeah, and if we're talking about Orthodox versus Reform and the, and the tension, look, that could be healthy tension. Tension is not inherently bad. We've driven over bridges that if we didn't have tension, we would die. Um, Tension can be constructive. It can't be constant, but it can be productive. So one of the nice things about having lots of different kinds of Jews is that I can go to a place and be in tension with another Jew and then go back to my home where it's nice and calm and quiet and I don't have to fight to exist in that space. Awesome. As long as we keep coming back to that place where we can engage, then we're, we're unified. We're a community. I bet you the communities you're in, you don't like every single person in it, right? But you still show up and you still make room for them. Um, the fact is, as long as you make sure that everyone feels comfortable sitting down for a Shabbat services or for lunch together, you're doing fine. So I think, so for me, like that's the, you know, how do we deal with questions of Israel? How do we deal with intermarriage? How do we deal with all those things Reb Shmuley put out? Honestly, the first step is get comfortable with the idea that we're not going to agree and that it's worthwhile to, to challenge each other. It's not just clergy who should, who should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what we do. If there's anything that's Jewish, it's the idea that somebody comes into the room and they're crying, we comfort them, we feed them, we take care of them, and if they look like they are the most confident creature in the world, we remind them they are but dust and ashes in our own particular ways. That's, to me, how it should work. So I guess I come back to unity is being able to fight and argue and disagree and then go have a drink. Very nice. So friends, uh, we're very grateful to the panelists for uh, joining and offering such thoughtful presentations to all of the participants who joined us for your thoughtful questions and engagement. And let's keep talking and learning together. It is very easy to make Judaism about me. Like what's the Judaism I want? What's the personal Judaism I want to engage in? Nothing wrong with that. It should be about the self. But also, how do we make the Jewish world better? How do we go beyond what's just good for me and say, I want to leave this stronger, I, quantitatively and qualitatively, more Jews participating in deeper, more quality experiences, not only so that we survive, but so that we can thrive in our mission, however we define that mission. And so these are important conversations, I think, for us to think and get clarity on what is, what is the Jewish mission I'm working to build in this community, at my synagogue or at, at, at some institution in town, and how am I learning more about that and helping to further that work here in the community I hope we can continue these conversations in our classes and panels. I'll be giving a class tomorrow starting a three-part series on Jewish perspectives on the afterlife. Hope you're potentially free to join us uh, along with many other great classes and panels we have coming up. Have a wonderful day, everyone.